I sure am grateful that 42 charter members of this congregation felt led by God to begin Oakmont on April 26 of 1964. And I stand amazed at their great vision and in their capability to believe beyond their imagination at the time of what we could become. So, you know, if it hadn't been for those 42 charter members and their vision and their uh, responding to God's leadership to begin Oakmont, all of us would potentially be seated in a church for worship today, but it wouldn't be Oakmont. And I might be the pastor of a congregation somewhere, but it wouldn't be Oakmont. So I'm grateful for the connection that we have shared all of these years and I'm grateful for this beautiful anthem that Pepper Choplin wrote and that our choir sang for us this morning. Well, we are in the season of Easter. Easter isn't just one day out of the year. There's actually in the liturgical year of the church a season of Easter uh, that runs a number of Sundays. And so this is the second Sunday of Easter, and we're going to be in the book of Revelation. So let me ask you to take your Bibles. If you don't know much about the Bible, I guarantee you, you can find the last book of the 66 books of the Bible. You can find the book of Revelation. Take note that the name of the book is not Revelations. It's not plural. It's Revelation. And in fact, the very first word of the book in Greek is apocalypse, and that means revelation. It means an unveiling. And this is a special type of literature that we're going to be looking at for several Sundays. We won't be able to cover all of the book of Revelation, but we'll hit some of the high points. Uh, Revelation's always been a hard book to understand because it is what is called apocalyptic literature. It looks at the end times, but it's also a word for the present. And so John, and we don't know a lot about the writer John, we know he was exiled on an island called Patmos. And we believe, most scholars believe, that the book of Revelation was written somewhere near the close of the first century, sometime around A.D. 95, during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. And there was a great persecution of Christians at that time. And so they needed a word of encouragement that the risen Jesus, the Jesus that we celebrate on Easter as having been brought back from the dead by God, they needed a word of encouragement. So a lot of this book may deal with the future, but a lot of this book may have dealt with the present of what was happening in the day and age of the people who read it. Now the reason it's so difficult is because there's so much symbolism in Revelation. There are a lot of signs. There's a lot of numbers that have symbols. There's a lot of use of angels and animals and visions and dreams. And more than likely, probably the people of John's day understood what all of these symbols meant. And here we are, 2,000 years later, trying to read back into it and figure out what did John mean. So there'll be times when we may have to make some good guesses about what's going on in Revelation. But chapter 1, let's read together. Follow along with me as we read the first eight verses. The revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, that which is being unveiled or disclosed here, 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon, that's a key word, we'll come back to it, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. That's another key phrase we'll come back to. The time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, this is not only a prophecy, but it's a letter that's addressed to seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, who are the seven spirits? We don't really know. It may well be a reference to the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn, or maybe your translation says, well, because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. And together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, my guess is you have heard of the Nobel Prize before? Can I have some nodding heads? Okay, you've heard of the Nobel Prize. It's the wor world's most famous prize that is given for outstanding achievement in a variety of categories, in literature, in peace, in economics, in science, and in medicine. There is a gentleman for whom it is named, Alfred Nobel. He was a Swedish industrialist. He massed an enormous fortune for his day that now funds this prestigious award. Guess how he amassed his uh, tremendous uh, wealth and fortune? Anybody? I'm, I'm just curious. You don't have to say it, but raise your hand if you know. Randy, you know? Anybody else know? Okay, you know, Chris, Bill, you know? A couple people back here know? All right. He, he amassed his tremendous fortune by creating explosives. He has 355 different inventions, including dynamite. How about that? I, I didn't know that about, about uh, Alfred Nobel. Now, what is it that may have persuaded this man to use his vast wealth 
in today's dollars worth about $265 million. What is it that persuaded him to use that wealth to inspire others to serve humanity? Well, we don't know this for certainty, but a lot of people have speculated that what persuaded Alfred Nobel to use his great wealth to create this prize is because he read his own obituary in the paper. You, you ever thought about what it would be right, like to wake up and open up the paper and read your own obituary? Well, he read his own obituary. How did that happen? Well, you see, in 1888, Alfred's brother Ludwig died in France. And they got the brothers mixed up. So they printed that Alfred Nobel had died. They named him as the one who had died in France. And the obituary writer branded Alfred as, quote, the merchant of death. The obituary went on to say that Alfred had grown rich by developing new ways to, quote, mutilate and kill. Well, you might imagine this just stunned. Alfred. It was such a shock, first of all, to see his name in the paper that he had died, and number two, to read his obituary and to see what the writers were saying about him. Now, of course, they went on uh, to correct the error and to identify the correct Nobel brother who had died, but a lot of people have speculated that this may well have created a crisis of conscience for Alfred Nobel, that it led him to reevaluate his life to really look at how did he want to use the remainder of his time left on this earth and how did he want to use this vast financial resources that he had amassed with these 355 different inventions. So he decided that the time had come. And three years later, in 1891, he rewrote his will. I'm not sure that a lot of people knew what he was planning to do with his wealth, but he rewrote his will and created now what we know as the Nobel Prize. You know, what Alfred Nobel did might not be bad advice for us from the angle that maybe we also ought to spend some time reevaluating our lives. Maybe we ought to spend a little bit of time reevaluating our resources before the time runs out and our obituary is printed. Because there's one thing that you and I can be sure of. There, there are two sure things in life, right? What are they? Death and tax. I knew you'd know that answer. April 15th just came and, and, and went, didn't it? And we had to deal with some taxes. Death and taxes are going to happen. And you know, as the writer of Revelation, as John suggests, you know, first of all, time's going to run out for all of us. And as Revelation suggests, now, now is the time to live into God's purpose for our life. You see, God has revealed to Jesus these things that are to come, according to the text, and he gives John a revelation that involves his son, Jesus Christ, and it's addressed to these seven churches in Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Every event that happens in the book of Revelation 
according to verse 1, must soon take place. That word soon means immediately, quickly. A lot of Christians skip over that word soon as they are interpreting the book of Revelation. Verse 3 says that persons who read and hear these words are blessed, and it goes on to say that those who take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. It's imminent. It's coming. So you see, while we may want to predict future in time events by way of the book of Revelation, and I'm not suggesting that maybe some of this will not be the case, the writer indicates that this letter and prophecy is meant for the people of John's day who are under this tremendous persecution by the Roman emperor simply for being Christians. So these things are forecasted to be happening soon, now. The time is right now, according to John. Now, it got me to thinking a little bit. Is, is God giving you and me a task, some mission, some opportunity, that he means to be done now, soon? Just like the task that he apparently laid on Alfred Nobel's heart. Just like the prophecy and the visions that he gave to John who put all of these uh, visions and words into what we have as the book of Revelation. It, is God giving you and me something to do now and the time to do it is soon now before time runs out? You know, there are two Greek words for time. The first Greek word is the word chronos. It's where we get our word chronology. Uh, chronos time is the time of the calendar. It's the time of the watch and the clock. It's the time of history. That's chronos. But the other Greek word <clears throat> is the word kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. And kairos time is the word that John uses here in this text. Kairos time is that decisive moment. It's that moment in which we need to take full advantage of the opportune moment that comes our way. So I'm, I'm just wondering this morning, wh what's happening in your life? Or what's happening in the life of our church? And God is coming to us and he's saying the time to act on it is now, right now. Do, do you think that God sometimes comes to our churches? D does Jesus, the risen Christ, overlook some of our churches, do you think? Does he look over Oakmont on its 55th anniversary? And does he maybe say to us and others of his churches around this globe, hey, I was trying to show you something. I was trying to teach you something. But you let your lack of faith get in the way. You let your prejudices or your biases get in the way. You let your inattentiveness or your laziness get in the way. You let time run out. And you didn't do what I called you to do. Do you think the risen Jesus comes to you and me individually in those decisive moments of our lives? You know, those important moments when we graduate from high school or college. Does he come to us in those moments in which we get the first job or we make a job change? 
Does the risen Jesus come to us in those moments of dating and marriage? Does he come to us in those moments of rearing children? Does he come to us in those moments when we're transitioning into retirement? Does the risen Jesus come to us in those moments of illness and in those moments even of death? And does he say to you and me at times, hey, I gave you a job. I gave you an opportunity. I gave you a task. And you let the time run out. You think the risen Christ says that to us? You know, it's easy to view the events of Revelation as events of future happenings. And maybe some of them are. But I wonder this morning if the real message of this book is not more about what God may be trying to do right now, soon, because the time is near. The opportunity is before us. You know, the text says, if you look over in verse 7, it talks about how he's coming with the clouds, every eye will see him, those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, or they will wail because of him. This is a reference, I think, to judgment. And it's interesting because that word mourn, that word wail, in the Greek means to be cut to the heart. To cut to the heart. Something has happened, something's been done, and you have such deep remorse or regret about it that you are cut to the heart because of it. Have you ever said something or done something or failed to say something, or failed to do something, and a day goes by, or a week goes by, or a month goes by, or a year goes by, or a lifetime goes by, and it sticks in your crawl. It's with you because you said it, or you did it, or you failed to say it, and you failed to do it. You failed to take action. And suddenly the light, the, the clarity, of what happened and what you did or didn't do dawns upon you. And there's this deep sense of remorse and regret. You are cut to the heart. You know, I, I think that God's judgment sometimes is pictured with this, you know, angry God, and we do something he doesn't like, so he spanks us, or he puts his finger out and he fusses us out. He sends us to some location of eternal punishment. You know, I, I think God's judgment is less of that and more of this wailing and mourning, this being cut to the heart, this being cut to the core of who we are because we regret, we have remorse. Suddenly the light of God's clarity shines into our lives and we see what we failed to do or what we did do and the implications it had for others and ourselves. I think that's what the text means when it says all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. They will wail, they will be cut to the heart. Is there something that you should have done yesterday, last week, a month ago? God laid it on your heart to go speak to someone, to go take some action, and you didn't do it. The time has come, and now it's left. And there's this sense of deep regret and wailing and mourning 
because I didn't act on the task that God gave me. Dickie Thompson, most of you wouldn't know, I wouldn't think Dickie Thompson. About a month ago, he spoke to his fellow city council members in Raleigh. It was a city council meeting. And they all were invited to tell some stories. And Dickie Thompson told a story that made most of his fellow Raleigh City Council members almost cry. You don't hear too many stories told in the legislature or the halls of Congress or in city council meetings that bring tears, but this story did. You see, Dickie Thompson said that when he and his wife built their home in Raleigh years and years and years ago, he said, they soon realized that they had, quote, a rocky relationship with their next-door neighbor. The reason they had a rocky relationship is because they had a dog. And it was before they were officially in the city limits, so there were no leash laws, and they let their dog roam. And everybody loved that mixed black lab named Webster. Everybody loved Webster except their next-door neighbor. He didn't like Webster, and he was angry that he roamed the neighborhood. And Dickie Thompson said about his neighbor, he says, things got worse, and to say the man didn't like me would, well, I would say he hated me. This went on for a long time, I'd say at least five years, and I felt like God had hardened his heart against me like he had hardened Pharaoh's heart against Moses. Dickie Thompson said he tried to win his neighbor's favor, but to no avail. And he says it wasn't until he read Matthew 22, verse 39, that he realized what was wrong. Dickie Thompson said, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And I realized that was me. I wasn't loving my neighbor as myself. I didn't love him. I was angry at him because he was angry at me. So Dickie Thompson said that he went to his neighbor and he apologized and he asked him to forgive him. And Dickie Thompson said that his neighbor just looked at him for a few minutes. He turned away and he says, I'm sorry. There have just been too many things between us. And he walked away. So about a month later, Dickie Thompson said that he and Webster, his mixed black lab, were out walking. And Webster had run off and came back with a hat in his mouth. And he realized that the hat belonged to his neighbor. So... He wanted to return it, so he walked over into his neighbor's yard, and over by his driveway was a drainage ditch, and there he found his neighbor laying face down in the drainage ditch, bleeding profusely. Dickie Thompson writes, he had fallen and could not get back up. So I went over, and when I leaned over to get him, he put his arms around my neck, and my whole body got warm. Because I knew God had answered my prayers at that very moment. I got him back to his house. I cleaned him up. 
and our relationship changed forever. Dickie Thompson told his fellow city council members in Raleigh that he learned that the man was an alcoholic and that his wife had been diagnosed recently with Alzheimer's and that he had to place her in a nursing home. He said that event, though, finding him in that drainage ditch that day changed their relationship forever. They became friends. And that man, that neighbor, even began to ask if Webster, the dog, could stick around his house during the day while Dickie Thompson was at work, and he said he'd look after him. And Dickie Thompson said that would be just fine. You know, a few years later, Dickie Thompson's wife went out one morning to get the paper. And she looked over at the neighbor's driveway, and the neighbor was laying down in the driveway. And when she got over, he was dead. He had died, apparently, of a massive heart attack. Dickie Thompson said that when they went to the funeral home a few days later for the visitation, the casket was open, and when they walked by to pay their respects, there was a picture that was laying on the neighbor's chest in the casket. It was a picture of the neighbor and of Webster, the black lab. You know, there are just some things that you and I are called to do. It could be a hundred different things for all of us in this room. But there are just some things that we are called to do, some task that God lays on our hearts, some words that he places in our minds that should go to our lips, that should be spoken. There are some things that God gives us to do that should happen now, soon. Kairos, the opportune time. It should happen now before time runs out and our obituary is printed.